exactly. If you told me that it makes him personally $30 million spread evenly over the next 10 years, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. I feel like I can rule the world. I know I could be what I want to. Uh, I put my all in it like no days off. On the road, let's travel, never looking back. All right, what up? Uh, Sean here. We got Sam, and then we got special guest Dan Held, the Dan Held from the Bitcoin space. And on Twitter, you've probably seen him around. I told my brother in law um, that you were on the pod today. He was very excited. I've told him about every guest so far, and you got one of the biggest reactions. He was a, I think he's a paid subscriber to your newsletter or something like that. So he's he's very into you. And on the other hand, I think Sam has no fucking clue who you are. So I think it's a perfect mix. <laughs> I know some stuff about you. Sam knows nothing about you. And I think it'll Dan, be fun for I, that reason. Uh, I only know that Sean says that you're cool and you're in Bitcoin. <laughs> I know nothing about you. Um, well, we got an hour to figure it out. We whenever we, whenever one of us proposes a guest, it's like you put that guest. It's like you, you have to go take the stand and have an oath that this person's going to be good, and then you better be able to lawyer up and defend why this person's a guest. And so he'll every time, anytime he mentions a name to me, I'm like, why the fuck are we having that person on? And then he'll like <laughs> defend it. And then same here, I was like, no, 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 this is going to be going to be interesting because couple, I think a couple reasons. We should talk about crypto, and then we should talk about I think like kind of like building your personal brand because you've done a really good job of that. And so we'll, we'll do both of those during this, during this convo. But I want to start with like, give people the like, what's the one minute story of who the heck you are? And yeah, yeah and I, I don't know, like, give us the one yeah. minute story of Dan Held. Yeah, the elevator pitch. Yeah. yeah. So I from Texas, originally, I grew up in Dallas, 25 years in Dallas, I studied finance in undergrad, stumbled and bumbled my way into tech. I didn't know what I was doing when I first built my my first software product in the space. It was successful. From there, learned how to formalize some of my skills around product management and marketing. Um, worked at a couple different early stage crypto companies. So I was at some of the first crypto companies I worked at, like blockchain.com. Um, I've had two exits in the crypto space, so I've sold two of my products. Uh, and then I've also worked at Uber, where I was on Rider Growth, led by Andrew Chen. So I was one of his directs and the growth marketing team. So... I've had big company, classic uh, tech experience, but also a lot of kind of that startup hustle in early stage crypto, which early stage crypto is kind of wild west, um, yeah. which I guess fits my, my Texas attitude. So, And yeah, so tell, the, tell people the story. So you got into crypto, Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoin specifically. You're, you're a Bitcoin guy. I shouldn't, I shouldn't keep saying crypto too much. <laughs> um, Bitcoin back in, I think, 2012 or so. Bitcoin was maybe 10 bucks back then. Um, what, you know, what caught your interest? How did you hear about it? What's the origin story for you? Yeah, so I got back in 2012. Uh, my buddy paid me back for a beer with something called a cassatious coin. A cassatious coin are those gold coins that you see in all those news articles where they talk about Bitcoin. They're, they were physical Bitcoins, essentially. And that was a good time. And in that 2012 era, Bitcoin is so new and <laughs> weird and, and different that that was like a good bridge from the physical fiat right. like paper money world to the, to the digital Bitcoin world. Uh, from there, my background is in finance. I really dug the 21 million hard cap as a solution to bad central banking policies. Uh, I, I mean, I was in undergrad during the 2008 financial crisis studying finance. And I'm like, my professors don't know shit. <laughs> right. Neither do the people on TV and ne neither do these books that I'm reading. And that's what kind of kind of shook my foundational uh, trust and belief in the existing financial system. And that's when Bitcoin came around. When I saw that, I was like, this is a good new uh, way to be rebuild the financial system without having to trust these institutions. All right, quick ad break to tell you about our sponsor, HubSpot. I know that growing pains hurt. 
And when you're a startup sales team, you know that pain all too well. Thankfully, there's HubSpot for startups. It's a special program that gives discounts to use HubSpot. The platform lets you unite your entire front office from sales to marketing all the way to customer support. Plus, they have a ton of resources to help a startup founder scale. So get ready to close more deals and make growing pains a thing of the past. Visit HubSpot.com slash startups to see how much you can save. And Sam, I don't know if you know this. Sam, do you know when uh, Satoshi signed the first block, he put a me- he put a message in there. Do you know? Do you have you ever heard what this is? No, but yeah. I, I love that guy's stories. I mean, I, the the myth or if it's real, I don't know what the truth is, but I love the story behind it. And Dan, I don't know if you know it off the top of your head, but but do you, do you know what it is? Yeah, so Satoshi was a really crazy character in terms of his expertise. I mean, he understood like human games. He understood game theory, encryption all sorts of different other topics and wove this all together to build Bitcoin. Bitcoin isn't just software. It, it, it wraps itself around understanding human levers to press, like greed of how the price cycles as the price goes up. People become more aware of it and by an expectation of the price going higher. Um, so Satoshi you know, really understood humans intimately. And, and part of this that he wove into the first block was the Genesis block message. And it said, UK Chancellor on the verge of second bailout for banks. So that was the only message that Satoshi ever put into the Bitcoin blockchain. And so it's a very clear signal that Bitcoin wasn't here to disrupt a Visa or PayPal. Bitcoin is here to disrupt the existing financial system and central banking. Right. And so there's like a, the, the mission, the mission was sort of like, I don't know, cleverly baked in, which I just, I just love. I'm, I'm like you, Sam, where I'm like, the more I learn about the origins the more this shit seems like it's out of a movie. Uh, it doesn't seem like real life. It's like, oh, this anonymous creator. It's like, how's anything anonymous nowadays, right? Like there's, there's like way, you know, like the, the way they caught the Silk Road guy was like his, the way he was typing or whatever matched some review he left on a movie message board or so, you know, there's always something like that. There's it, always a breadcrumb trail. Is it always... actually, is it still anonymous? Uh, I mean, obviously no one's come out. Could it have been the, the, the guy who had ALS and died? I mean, what, what, what do you, what, yeah. do, what do smart people who know what what's Dan's, about? what's Dan's theory? Uh, the, uh, everyone's got their own favorite Satoshi tale. I'll right. give you two. So one is Hal Finney, the one that you just described. He had ALS and died, I think in 2012 or 2013. Uh, Hal Finney is a, a classic favorite because he ghost wrote PGP encryption and Bitcoin's proof of work system is based on his early reusable proof of work system that he created earlier. Bitcoin wasn't a new innovation. It just kind of Frankensteined all these other innovations together. And that's how Satoshi built Bitcoin. Hal Finney has the demeanor of Bitcoin. He was also the first recipient of a Bitcoin transaction or he was sending it to himself. Right. <laughs> Which is what, you, by the way, if you ever work with developers, yeah. that's what they do. They, when they're testing shit out, the first thing they do is they send it to my account A, to my account, to, to Sean, yeah. Sean sends to Sean test. But the ghost writing PGP encryption back in that era with Phil Zimmerman, PGP encryption was considered a weapon by the defense, uh, by, by the, the Department of Defense. So when he ghost wrote PGP, he knew that he was potentially going to be convicted for like illegal uh, arms trafficking. Wow. So he understood what it meant to take on a government at this scale. And so he, and, and when, he, when I say ghost wrote, he ghost wrote it because his name isn't officially on it. So right. same with Bitcoin. He was one of the few people to, that would have built Bitcoin in that fashion, uh, you know, hiding behind a pseudonym of Satoshi and using that because that was critical that the project had no face to it, had no central weak point. Because if right. you could find Satoshi and, and he's sort of a weak point, in the governance structure and in the ownership structure, that could undermine the the long term success of the protocol. So yeah, Hal's a classic favorite. And, also, and died one. around the same time that Satoshi stopped 
doing anything. We haven't seen a, a mess a, a flare from Satoshi since, right? That's right. Satoshi hasn't signed a message with his private key, which would concretely determine that that is Satoshi, or give us a strong determination that that is Satoshi. Right. So, so that timeline makes sense. That's theory one. What's theory two? Theory two is the NSA. So <laughs> theory two is that it's the NSA because the NSA builds weapons. And Bitcoin is a financial weapon. It could destabilize countries and destabilize their currencies. And so uh, th- and this is just a more fun, I mean, totally yeah. off the wall sort of thinking. <laughs> but so let's say a group of crypto- cryptographers, which some of the best in the world work at the NSA, come up with Bitcoin because they're tasked with building a weapon. And after they build it, they go, wait a second, maybe we should just release this into the wild because we do believe that this is good for humankind. Right. And they release it as kind of like it's like a Frankenstein experiment let out of the lab. Uh, so I think that one's kind of fun. I mean, there's no there's no facts behind that where, at all. Where, where that's, would that's you like bet the, your uh, lab leak hypothesis for for the <laughs> pandemic? Basically, that's that's what you're saying. I think one's hey. more realistic than the other. Maybe. <laughs> what uh, w- would you bet your money on one of those, Dan? Probably more the health. Anyone? I, I feel that it's an individual. So so that's always the question too. Is it an individual or a group of people? I skew more individual. Designed by committee is really hard to do with something as niche and like incredible, like an incredible breakthrough like Bitcoin. Right. So I think that one person just had that genius to to take all these elements and put them together to create Bitcoin versus a group of developers trying to figure out how to build this thing. And and uh, what, there's also the other thing, which is like, it's just somebody else. So if you were going to p- apply your percentages, what percent is Hal Finney, NSA or other? <laughs> I've, uh, this is super tough, but maybe like 50% Hal Finney, uh, 30% Nick Zabo and 20% NSA. Wow. Like that. <laughs> All right. I like that. Um, okay. So you discover Bitcoin because some guy gives you a coin uh, and you don't, you're not just like, dude, what is this? Like, can I have my 10 bucks, please? And, and so you go, you read about it. Uh, what happens that night? So you go and you, you, what, you read the white paper, you join the forums, you just start reading about it online. And then like, I guess, like, take us through the thought process of you going from where you were then to, like, where you are now, where Bitcoin is, like, you know, a a pretty major part of your life. Yeah, and I can kind of weave in my early entrepreneurship, like, in tech part of that, too, because it's all kind of intertwined together. So I start to read about it. The 21 million hard got the monetary policy. I see this as a huge breakthrough because if you remove the subjectivity of of choosing what an appropriate rate of inflation is, you've solved the problem of monetary theory. So, like... Satoshi solved the problem of like going, hey, we shouldn't constantly figure out what the rate of inflation should be. We should fix it and the economy can reorient around that. Genius breakthrough. So that got me really hooked. Um, I worked at a small investment firm in Dallas. Nothing anyone would know. It's a really tiny one. Wasn't prestigious or anything like that. They relocated me to San Francisco to open up their West Coast portfolio. Out in San Francisco, I, during the, uh, it was the April Bitcoin run up from $10 to 260, back down to 100. I was going to the Bitcoin meetups in San Francisco. This was where like Brian and Fred from Coinbase were hanging out. And same with Jared Kennett from Trade Hill and, and Jesse Powell from Kraken, my com- the company I work right. at now. I mean, there's and, only like... And what were those like? Because we were just in Miami uh, when the Bitcoin conference was happening and it was kind of like a, like a bunch of fools acting the fool, I thought. I didn't attend, but just through what, you, what, what was coming out on social media, I guess. And, and everything, every community changes from like when it's the outsiders and, um, you know, just the true believers to like, you know... 10 years later, 11 years later, what it, what it looks like is, is very, very different. Every community changes. All, all of my friend, my roommate was buying, I was mining in 11 and 12 and they were just hardcore devs and nerds. And so oh, what, yeah. were the, what were those meetups like? <laughs> so I remember I was still working at a small investment firm. So I'm rolling up in fucking business casual 
to a developer to a developer oh, to a Bitcoin meetup. Yeah. And they're like, "What the hell are you doing here?" Um, I w- there's only a dozen of us. I mean, it was tiny. And actually, I put pictures on Twitter where you can see pictures from the old meetup. I mean, it, it's just a co- it's a cooler of PBRs and a bunch of people kind of geeking out on this thing called Bitcoin. Right. Uh, March, April, 2013 hit. Price goes to 260. Boom, you've got like VCs slanging out business cards. Everyone's excited. There's 150 people that come to the meetup. You know, there's this energy, this palpable energy. And then the May 2013 conference happens. The Winklevi announced they've been, they've been, they've bought Bitcoin. They're involved. The, the conference had like a few hundred people, which was kind of wild. If you see Coinbase's booth from videos from back then, they printed out like an eight, eight and a half by 11 that just had Coinbase on it. Like they just printed it off their <laughs> computer in the office or their printer. The printer in the office and taped it on their booth. And Brian and Fred were the guys manning the booth. So like, that's how early it was. Super, super early in the space. And during that moment, that's when I found a problem, a problem that needed to be solved, which was finding the real-time price of Bitcoin on your mobile device. At that time, there was no app in the app store that gave you real-time market data, which is crazy because Bitcoin fluctuates a lot. People, you know, were constantly opening up their phone to check the price of Bitcoin. All the other developers before then just refreshed the price every 15 minutes or so. So me and a buddy put it together. Now, I didn't know what I was doing. I was a finance guy, you know, trying to figure out how to make a product. And so I just became really obsessed with solving this problem. And so I knew enough in Photoshop to where I could design the app. So I just looked at apps that I liked, took elements from that to design uh, ZeroBlock, which was this product, and designed it. And we designed it really, really simply because I couldn't design anything more complex. Back in that day, skeuomorphism was the popular design aesthetic. And we did flat UI because I couldn't design bevels and stuff. So I just became obsessed with solving this problem for myself. Turns out a lot of other people had that problem too. And that's where I kind of like stumbled my way into some product fundamentals of like, it's all about solving a problem for your customer. And then I got into a tinge of growth marketing, uh, where I found how to hack my way to the number two spot for the word Bitcoin in the app store. So we got most of our installs, you know. All, and how'd you do that? What, what was the hack? Yeah, so Apple at the time, when they really originally built the App Store, they forked it from iTunes. And so there's an old character limit uh, that they had for titles of songs, which is 255 characters. But they also allowed that character limit for app titles. It was truncated after 60 words. Right. Basically, but you, you can fill in a shit ton, of, shit ton of words in the, to, in, the, in the core title. Old school keyword stuffing. Yeah, yeah. I learned <laughs> old school growth hacking technique of just keyword stuffing. But it worked. Now, it was sort of a crapshoot to see if the uh, App Store reviewers would approve it, but one out of five would. And if you did, you could clinch that spot. Right. So that kind of started my fascination with both products and with growth marketing, kind of on the more hacky side of things. And yeah, that was my, that was my initial foray into tech. And then we sold Serial Block at the end of the year to blockchain.com. Uh, blockchain.com is still around today. It's a really popular wallet. I was the first product manager there. And so kind of, that's what I mean by stumbled and bumbled my way into tech is I didn't have any formal, yeah, I didn't have any formal background. I just kind of was really empathetic with solving a problem for my customer, wanted to propagate the, the message of my products. And that's how I learned those two skills. All right, everyone, a quick break, because I want to fill you in on a little experiment that I'm doing. I've got a new project. It's called MoneyWise. It's a personal finance podcast for high net worth people or young people who are on their way to becoming high net worth. When I made a little bit of money, I didn't even know how much money I should be spending each month. Should it be 10000 30000 50000 And I didn't really have a lot of people to ask. So I created a podcast called MoneyWise because I wanted to figure out what are some of the things that people who have a lot of cash and who have a high net worth, what do they do with it? The first episode is with a friend of mine. He sold his company for $200 million when he was 31 years old. He gets super transparent 
about his monthly expenses, his portfolio, how it impacts his happiness, everything. And so I want you guys to check it out. It's called Money Wise. That's one word. You can find it on my Twitter bio. I'm the Sam Parr, or you can just type in Money Wise on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube. All right, back to the pod. Hey, let's take a quick break to tell you about the HubSpot Podcast Network. If you like podcasts like this, you should check out some other cool podcasts. One is called Business Made Simple. It's hosted by Donald Miller, and it's brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network. And what he does is he makes it easy to take the mystery out of growing your business. There's an episode that you should check out called What You Should Put in a Job Description to Get the Perfect Hire. And in this episode, Donald Miller looks at the whole hiring process and how important it is to emphasize both the the positive attributes and the drawbacks to future candidates. And you'll learn why being self-aware as a leader will help you avoid hiring disasters. So check it out. Go listen to Business Made Simple wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's talk about some ideas, Sean, shall we? Yeah. So Dan, I don't know if you know, but this is the ideas podcast where we basically say, okay, that like, I'm interested in the past, but to the extent that I learned cool things and then I'm like, all right, let's get to the future. What's the future sure. look like? So, so ideas. So I think there's really like, I guess like, let's start in the Bitcoin crypto space. What problems do you see today that you think somebody needs to solve? Like back then there was no real-time price data. That was a problem that needed solving. Sure. What are you seeing today as a problem that needs solving? Yeah, there's one idea that's particularly fascinating, but it's not very sexy. Now, there's a lot of really good intersections there where you find value in like this new idea because not a lot of people are looking at it. It's around private wealth management for crypto holders. Imagine a current crypto billionaire walks into a family office, multifamily office, and they're like, hey, I'd like you to help manage my portfolio. And they sit down five suits in front of this guy with a hoodie. And they say, hey, well, uh, first of all, we'd like to take you know, a 2% management fee of all your holdings. And they're like, well, I, I self-custody my coin. Right. <laughs> and they'd be like, I don't even know what that means. Right. You know, and then they would go, well, how much, how much of your net worth is in crypto? And they would say 90%. And then the first thing they would say is diversify. Right. The existing uh, private wealth managers and multifamily offices have no idea of how to service crypto, wealthy crypto folks. I mean, you, you can't probably, even, you can, I, I told my guy at the bank today, let's buy some Ethereum. And he was like, oh, we, we're, we can't. It's ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous. It's, it's so antiquated. They just don't talk, don't even talk the same language as all these crypto folks, right? Like I'm a more Bitcoin guy, but if you go down like the Ethereum rabbit hole, there's a whole, I mean, there's so much complexity in, in how those DeFi and, and smart contracts work. It's where you need like a full tax team to solve that problem too. Yep. But these, I mean, I've been in this space for almost nine years. I know more billionaires on this planet than probably anyone else because of, because of crypto. Because crypto has created so many, and not, not institutions, but individuals who have billions to where yeah, there needs to be crypto a probably, of- Bitcoin is probably, Bitcoin plus Ethereum has probably created more individual billionaires than any other project, right? Exactly. I think, I think that's got to be true, which is kind of insane. Like more than Microsoft, more than Amazon, more, more than any of those projects. How many crypto billionaires do you know? How many billionaires do you know? <laughs> um, I would say off the top of my head, at least... At least ten. Um, ten. How many? Ten in crypto. How about a um, hundred million on up? Oh man, I mean, I would assume I at least know a hundred or so folks that probably have that much. Now, look, Bitcoin people don't tell you how much they have, right? <laughs> but you can kind of assume based on how long they've been in this space and what companies they worked at and how much their net worth was back then, and probably, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. a general assumption. But how much of your personal money were you putting into this before your Bitcoin started, like making sense? Like, were you putting like a hundred grand into this in 2012 when it was like, who the fuck knows if this is going to work? Because a hundred grand to you at your, like, I wish. Well, because you're, <laughs> yeah, I you, wish. Yeah, you were really young. <laughs> that that would have been a lot of money. 
Yeah. yeah I, I didn't have that much money, man. I mean, look, I was like uh, 25, 26, just out of, and I was in, I, you know, my first job was in Dallas. I was making 45K a year. It wasn't like a ton of money. Yeah. And then I got into tech eventually. And of course, that went up quite a bit. But that was in 2013, 2014. Now, um, my average cost basis was $10 to 100. But there's a bunch of coins I got from in the hundreds to thousands, right? Yeah. So I think a lot of people look at like crypto OGs like myself and they assume we had like a, a million dollars sitting right. around that we all dumped in at $5 a Bitcoin. And also I wasn't a perfect hodler. I day right. traded, I traded Litecoin, I traded a bunch of other stuff just for fun. I even mined Prime coin. So I'm not, you know, on, on my Bitcoin journey, I've touched a bunch of other coins as well. Um, so no one's a perfect hodler. Yeah, Psychologically, <laughs> are you able to buy the dip when the dip is like 30,000 and it's like, well, my cost basis is 192 and, uh, you know, or like whatever it's five, even, even if it's 3000, if my cost basis is 3000 buying at 30, it's like buy the dip. Great. So are you able to psychologically do that? Or are you just like, Hey, my position is set. I hope the rest of you suckers buy the dip so that, uh, you know, we keep this upward momentum. Yeah, so technically I'm over 100% of my net worth in Bitcoin because I took a small levered position back when Bitcoin was $7,000 at the bottom of the cycle uh, because I believed that Bitcoin, you know, in a bull run obviously appreciates. So right. I uh, technically over 100% of my net worth is in Bitcoin. Uh, also, I do something where I lend out my Bitcoin to earn a yield. Yeah. That yield is like kind of a day-to-day -day stacking mechanism to add more sats, to add more right. Bitcoin. And you're using what, like, uh, Kraken, BlockFi, who, who, what are you using? So Kraken doesn't have, uh, you, you're at Kraken now, so I, I put That's them right. first, but I don't think they offer this as a service. I appreciate the shout out, but no, we don't offer that yet. <laughs> yeah, so we've got like BlockFi, Let-In, and uh, Genesis Trading. Now, Genesis Trading, you have to have like a minimum of 20 Bitcoin to be a customer. So, right. by the way, I bought some secondary in Kraken, so I'm I'm with you on on the oh, Kraken sweet. train. Let's we'll go, we'll go all the way to the top. Dude, how the hell when you, so Kraken, how many people at Kraken do you think have more than, 15 million dollars yeah. how do you employ people when they're all fucking rich? yeah that, that's <laughs> what i want to know like how often do they tell yeah. you like hey, you know what dad go fuck yourself i'm out <laughs> and then like next week it's like dan i'm bored got a spot for me yeah <laughs> it's you know it's a particular challenge for crypto i mean crypto it's the hardest industry to build a business in think about it this way too like you've got monsoon season the bull run and you want to capture all of that revenue potential but if you start to spend and deploy capital through hiring and building offices and whatnot, by the time that the bull runs over, like when do you turn off the spigot? Like when do you turn off all that cash flow going out? And then how much do you cut back? And I think that's really, really tricky. Like how do you predict these cycles? No one knows. If we did, we'd all be trillionaires. And so I think like that's the most difficult part of this is like how do you build a business with those fluctuations in demand? And how do you match expenses to meet that? But yeah, I mean, you know, in, in terms of in terms of employee churn, it's super tricky. I actually put in my job descriptions for my growth marketing team, no crypto experience required. I first find it really refreshing when folks come in and challenge language right. that we use in our ads, homepage, app store page, et cetera, on how we describe crypto because I'm, I've been in too long. It's hard for me to zoom all the way out and see what it looks like from a newbie. Right. And so one, I like that perspective. And two, to the motivational issue. I think, um, you know, folks who are new to crypto are much hungrier uh, than ones who haven't been there. Um, okay, so, so let's do this private wealth manager. So what would you actually build here? Would it be a services company? Would it be a software company? What would be the, I, how would you attack this problem? Yeah, it's a services company and you can't take bips on AUM. That's like an old way to do it. You'd have to figure out some sort of new model that's maybe more subscription or something like that. The first and foremost problems you're tackling Taxes. <laughs> Taxes are incredibly complicated for crypto trades, especially if you're going to DeFi things. Yeah. One would be taxes. Two, 
so taxes not only cover trades, but also covers future tax minimization strategies. For example, there's a trust called a GRAT. A GRAT is a great way to pass on your crypto to your son, daughter, et cetera, a partner without any taxable event occurring. So right. there's all sorts of very advanced structures that exist for very wealthy folks that most crypto people have no idea. You know, they, they, this wasn't institutional wealth. They didn't, they didn't work at Goldman. They were in their basement mining Bitcoin or mining Ethereum. You know, like <laughs> it, it's a whole different world, right? Right. And, and they're, that's they're where... going to trust different things. In fact, I think yeah. what you did where you built your brand and you're like, oh, build a big audience. I think you have a few hundred thousand followers on Twitter for Bitcoin. I think that's what you would do if you come out and you're like, hey, I'm the Bitcoin tax guy. And I'm going to talk every day about how to like deal with the tax problem of Bitcoin and wealth management for wealthy Bitcoiners. And I'm going to, my sales is all, all going to happen through content. And then whoever, and then you'll probably get billionaires coming inbound saying, hey, will you manage my stuff? Um, I mean, that, that's how I, you would do this. I've known these billionaires personally for eight years. So I actually DM'd a bunch of them and asked them if they used multifamily offices and none right. did. Right. So I already know that it's a problem that they're not currently solving. Uh, they, went to, <laughs> they went to some traditional financial folks and they talked to me about their experiences and I was like, wow, that sounds terrible. Um, right. So for me, I'm very happy at Kraken. I, I love the team I'm working with. I love the team I've built. Um, also, they acquired my company, so I'm very incentivized to stick around. But I couldn't be more excited. In terms of a rocket ship in this space, Kraken's a great spot to be at. And I'm a growth guy. So it's all about that like hyper growth and Kraken's like a perfect, perfect spot. But this is more for fun on the side of thinking like what we're all, we're all tinkerers. Yeah, we'll like, we yeah. like to tinker, tinker with stuff and think through stuff. And this is kind of my recent fascination. So Sam, do you know about the like the tether uh, question mark? Have you heard this, Sam? No. Okay. So uh, I'll, I'll ask Dan to kind of explain it. So Dan, I'm going to ask you to, to do two things. One is explain what people are, what some people are afraid of with tether. And uh, why that might be like, you know, people call it, oh, is this the black swan that's going to crash all of crypto, et cetera, et cetera. And then how you sleep at night being 100% of your net worth in Bitcoin, <laughs> knowing that this potential question mark exists with Tether. So, so explain the, the potential problem and then how you think about it. Sure. So Tether is called a stablecoin. A stablecoin is a representation of a fiat currency. So Tether represents US dollars and it's called USDT. So USDT is created by companies wiring money in to a Cayman Island entity and they wire it in there and then tethers are minted and created and those are put on the blockchains. Uh, Tether has existed on the Bitcoin blockchain, Ethereum blockchain, and Tron blockchain, uh, amongst others, I think as well. So what that Tether represents is a one-to-one -one backing of a dollar. Now, the company that issues these, uh, which is like Tether United, uh, like Tether Limited plus uh, Bitfinex, which is an exchange, there were concerns over if they were truly backed one-to-one. -one. And there were moments when it wasn't, but they've recently reached a settlement with, I believe, the New York District Attorney. I think is who they. Yeah. I forget exactly who they settled with. There's Attorney so General, regulators. New York Attorney General. I think there's so many regulators. I forget who who settled with who. But um, yeah, they essentially settled and agreed to do audited to, to perform audits and come out with exactly how much they had in reserve. Um, so the controversy and the worry is that tethers are. Uh, I, so there's a couple worries. One is that tethers. Um, you know, first and foremost, aren't backed. And that could lead to a kind of like a classic run on the bank situation where more people try to redeem tethers and there's not enough tether, there's not enough dollars in the bank to be able to redeem, to be able to be redeemed. And that would cause uh, structural problems at the crypto ecosystem. Number two, I think is like the idea that USDT is being used in smart contracts and DeFi. And it's completely centralized because USDT, like USDC, these stable coins that are centrally issued by companies like Tether and Circle, 
they can be reversed or, or, or frozen or paused and that truly decentralized. And a lot of the space, a lot of the DeFi space, I think it, a lot of the contracts, for example, like MakerDAO, uh, so, so MakerDAO is like a, uh, like an algorithmic stable coin. Well, almost 50% of its collateral is, is centralized stable coins. So right. it, it represents a systemic risk to DeFi and centralized finance, AKA the exchange space. So, so the fear is basically if the tether people are not being on the up and up, so you have to trust people, which is like kind of the anti crypto way. Um, if they're just, they could just be printing tethers, um, or be holding not one-to-one dollar assets so they could be like a bank fractionally reserving saying oh for every dollar we have we have five tethers um and basically using that to buy and then that's being used to buy bitcoin so it's like artificially it's not that bitcoin has any issue with it but it, that's what's driving up run-ups in price is there's a huge amount of bitcoin that's bought with tether and so that, uh, that's so the, that's question the concern now how legitimate is the concern right. so if we dig into it and i wrote about this uh in the held report my my newsletter if you dig into this, there it isn't as bad as people say. Um, there's all sorts of moments when Tether wasn't fully collateralized, as in there wasn't enough Tether to be redeemed to dollars, and the industry was fine. Um, also, we're talking about exchanges don't hold Tethers. The users hold Tethers. So Tether is just like any other crypto asset. So there's been tons of times when multi-billion dollar crypto assets have gone to zero, and the structural problems in the space have been okay. We've also suffered much more egregious moments in the crypto space like Mt. Gox. Mt. Gox mm-hmm. represented 90% of trading volume. This would be like Binance, Coinbase, and Kraken all going down at the same time. You know, these are hugely stressful moments for the, um, for the marketplace. And so Bitcoin has been through a lot worse. Bitcoin inherently doesn't need Tether. Tether is being used to buy Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. But for example, like... Um, Different other government fiat currencies are used to buy Bitcoin, but that doesn't mean that Bitcoin is dependent on the dollar. It's not dependent on USDT. And then I think, you know, another concern that I forgot to bring up earlier, people hypothesize like Tether is being used to pump Bitcoin. I think that's completely unfounded. It was based on a University of Texas research report, which I don't even know if you could call it fucking research, but it was like a research report where they basically said that correlation is causation. (laughs) Right, which is absurd. It's like saying that, like you know, uh, umbrellas cause rain right. <laughs> because they're correlated. So it's really ridiculous. That's where the core root of of some of the concerns that like oh tether is being used to pump Bitcoin come from. Completely unfounded. There's no data that supports that. And also, there's moments when tethers are printed when Bitcoin goes down. But of course, the people who buy into this whole theory ignore those moments. Right. And uh, okay, so so that's a, that's a great answer. So you, um, I want to switch to basically. Talking about uh, other Bitcoin, or other other let's say crypto ideas that you see that uh, the average person is either not knowing about. You know, it's an interesting idea that you're not that that's not as well known yet, or you see the opportunity for somebody to go build. Do you see any other opportunities besides the private wealth management space? The private wealth management one for me is one that's just really sticky. Um, that one's like super interesting. Other ones that would be good as well. Um, I just think simplicity is the ultimate way to go build product. It means that folks find value in your product much more quickly. You can convey the value prop. People discover the value prop. They could activate it at a higher rate. So I think like simplest, uh, a very, very simple, very, very simple mobile experience for wallets, I think is still like very underappreciated. I think the wallet space still has horrid user experience. Like, for example, let's say when you send a Bitcoin transaction, Bitcoin transactions have two states, unconfirmed and confirmed. And to a, a, lay, a lay person, like, what does that even mean? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and all wallets default to this language. 
And I would disagree that they should even default to that language. I mean, you should add a, a layer in the a layer above that in the GUI of something much more understandable. Wallets are kind of fundamental to the core ethos of the system. And there's a lot of things you can do now uh, where you layer in uh, trading capabilities built in there, et cetera. So I think the, the space still doesn't have great, great to use wallets. I think like Exodus wallet is really good. But other than them, I haven't seen like an experience around the core experience of holding your crypto that was just mind-blowingly amazing. Do you right. have a security team, like a physical security team? Do we? Like, like bodyguards and shit. No, you. <laughs> um, well, I'm in Texas, so obviously I own a few guns. Um, <laughs> so it's a come and take it sort of attitude. At conferences, I do have security. Who do you hire? Yeah. Um, it's it's uh, you know provided to me by uh, through the company. How much do they spend each year on on these sec- on security guards? You know, <laughs> I'm not sure, but uh, but Kraken is constantly focused about security. They're they're kind of nuts when it comes to security at Kraken. It's uh, in terms of like how you control like where your laptop is and everything else. They're an exchange, right? Kraken's been around for ten years and has never been hacked. So for us, like they're constantly paranoid about that. And the human attack vector is the weak points in any tech system. So they're very conscious about like different executives and high profile individuals, like where they are. Um, you know, if they're at, at events with a lot of people, they got to think about physical security. So it's something that they think they think about all the time. I have no idea how much that costs, though. I would be curious to hear about that because whenever I see, I mean, I, I don't have. I, I'm I'm in a different friend group as you. Maybe I've got a few friends that have tens of millions of Bitcoin, but. Um, I am always curious as to how like the the actual security because I would think that when it comes to hacking, I would think it would be just like stealing, like kidnapping someone, stealing stealing the person as opposed to trying to like <laughs> break into the thing. Totally, yeah, and that's actually classically called the wrench attack in the Bitcoin world. Is that someone could come to you and just whack <laughs> you over the head with a wrench, right? Now, at the same time, you know, Sam, you've done very well, and, and Sam and Sean, like you guys have both done very well, and we see you guys know billionaires that walk around the streets of San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And they're not getting mugged and, and, and kidnapped for ransom. So in, in with Bitcoin, yeah, Bitcoin is easily transferable. But let's say that let's say this person is not into Bitcoin at all. They can easily take their liquid assets, buy Bitcoin, and then transfer it to the kidnapper. So whether or not you hold Bitcoin, if that makes you more or less susceptible to getting attacked, I don't think it does. Well, that doesn't necessarily seem fair. Like, but that said, I'm not uh, I'm not entirely educated on it. So I'm not st- sticking by this quite hardly. Or uh, I'm not sticking to this entirely, but like when I uh, when I have money in a variety of different places, there's a, a, a pretty large amount of checks and balances that go into transferring it. So I just tried to transfer money to a another bank today, and there was like a hard cutoff. Whereas with a lot of crypto stuff, you can literally have it in a uh, in like a stored. Like some type of store, like physical. I could, I could fat finger the number I'm putting in, and I could transfer. Yeah. You know, instead of five, I could transfer five thousand. You know, yeah. in and an I instant, also, and there's no getting it back. And like credit cards do a pretty good job of doing fraud protection. Um, um, usually, is it what's it called? What's the the two hundred fifty thousand dollars of checking accounts are uh, are insured? Oh, FDI. Yeah, it's also a big problem of like death, right? So, uh, so I think there's a startup opportunity here too, which is how, what happens to your Bitcoin when you die, and yeah. um, and 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 how do you how do you manage that? So, on one hand, you can leave instructions to your spouse or whatever, which is like, hey, to get all to get access to all of our private keys, here's what you do. But now you have instructions to get all your private keys. That's you know somewhere. 
Uh, yeah. So you have to protect that. <laughs> so you have to have yeah, like you, multiple layers. You're starting it, to go down the rabbit hole. You're starting to, yeah, exactly. it, it gets, you, you kind of get in this circular logic loop of like, well, I can't trust anyone else with my money. So I need to manage my private key. And then it's like, well, if I want to pass it on, I have to trust with them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and then actually, and then you also have the like I, the problem of like actually like property uh you know property transfer when you die is like it goes through either probate or you have a will and I just think that there's probably a lot there that if you if you look at this group of crypto wealthy as just a new customer that exists and they're gonna it's it, I have this framework this two by two which is like you know um is it, is it an old problem or a new problem and then is there an old solution or a new solution right and so this is a case where it's it's a bunch of old problems but we need a new solution because it's a new type of customer it goes back to the private wealth management idea exactly there's actually a way to solve this too it's called multi-signature yeah. which means that your bitcoin isn't controlled by one key that opens up the vault there's three keys and you need two out of three keys to open up the vault. And there's all sorts of like, there's three out of five key structures. So right. those would be how you do this through time is you give like your, your, your CPA one, your wife, wife or husband one, you'll you keep the one, other, yeah. and then you give the other two to whomever else, or you keep three on your own. So there, there's a lot of elegant ways to do that. Multisig, I think is the only way that's like, but the thing is now you have to educate your, there's no CPA in the world that knows private key management well. Right. That's where this entity would, for example, be one of the key holders. They would know very good private key management practices and only sign as uh, for under cert certain conditions, which would also help against the kidnapping vector and where they would have like a velocity limit. You've DM me before about stuff that's in the creator kind of like audience space. Um, I don't know where you want to go with that. I'll, I'll kind of leave it open, but uh, you seem to have like a theory or a framework of like where the puck is going when it comes to this creator thing, or like, I don't know, you've successfully built your personal brand. And you know, like, I don't know how many years ago, nobody knew who the fuck Dan Held is. And today you're known by a bunch of, you know, crypto nerds. So like, what is the, what is you, you give me your thought process around e either one of those two, like generally where it's going or for you specifically, how you think about it. Yeah. So I'm like a, I'm a growth product, growth marketing guy. So when I find like a vein of gold where I find like engagement or I find user acquisition, it just fascinates me. Right. So uh, the creator economy is about, you know, for the, I th or most folks on the show, I'd say up to speed with creator economy yeah. stuff. Okay, yeah. cool. So, um, you know, I built an audience in the crypto space, in the Bitcoin space. My, my main message is just Bitcoin though. So I'm, I'm straight to the Bitcoin ethos. I've been in a long time. So, and my last name is a pun on the favorite meme, HODL. Right. So my last name actually is real though. <laughs> my last name truly is hell. It's actually a German last name. Um, which, <laughs> and so uh, with that, I decided to lean into that. And I just started to write. I wrote long form articles. I started to tweet. And that, those got, got traction. And I found over time that there's a certain way that these gain traction. It's, it's, not, it's not by random circumstance. There are ways to understand the engagement algorithm and use that to propagate your message. For me, I really love Bitcoin. What's, what's, an, example? Bitcoin. what's an example of, uh, of something you saw that, that was working? Sure. Well, you can do Twitter advanced search and search for the most popular tweets from any account. Filter, though, by, filter those by the most popular and then actually take a format of what they've tweeted and just take an iteration of that. Right. You already know it's probably going to work. And you just take a small tweak and that's, that almost always works. Yep. Uh, you could also do a quote tweet where like, let's say, let's say like a Naval tweet. You can just copy paste Naval's quote with quotes and tag Naval and you'll get almost <laughs> as much tweet. engagement right. as Naval does. Yeah. <laughs> like even if you're a really tiny account. So little, little things like that. There's a whole bunch of those that I discovered. Because um, yeah, again, I'm a growth marketing guy. So I'm digging in and I'm like, oh man, this, this engagement tactic really worked. I've done some things like if you see auto playing videos, you can build those in the media center uh, in Twitter, which you have to have an ads account to do those, but they're not an ad. It's organic. 
Uh, so little little tips and tricks like that. Um, consistency, I think, is the number one thing that people forget. I have not missed tweeting a day in three years. If you do, you lose your spot in the relevancy engine with Twitter. So Twitter every day, uh, there's, there's like 90% of consumers and 10% of us creators. Well, the creators create content for the board consumers, the consumer session in the product, and Twitter needs to figure out how to hook them immediately. And so Twitter goes to all their previous engaged content and they go, well, who do they engage with every day? And if they've built up a habit of engaging with myself, then they're like, well, let's give them a Dan Held tweet. But if I don't tweet that day, then there may be like, oh, let's give them a Chris tweet or someone else's tweet uh, because they need to go hook them immediately. And then if that engagement loop gets built with them over time, then also slowly start to lose relevancy with them. So con- consistency is absolutely the most important thing on Twitter and most of these channels. I think that was like the really big breakthroughs for me. It's, it's not quality, it's quantity. It's about always having content there for them to consume and building that habit. And then you, over time, you focus on quality, where I think I've gotten a little bit more high quality over time, especially like I stood up a YouTube channel, I've got 25,000 subs in, in six months. And I just shoot one continuous shot. I don't, right. <laughs> I don't even edit it. I just do one continuous shot, even if I like sneeze or something, I just kind of like keep going. Uh, because I don't have enough time to spend in post production and doing cuts. And you guys have great video content. I just don't have time to go do that. Neither do we. It's all about like, <laughs> does my audience, does my audience like, will they engage with the content? Well, it's an MVP, right? It's an MVP. If people like it, then you go spend time. You you pay for an editor or something to go help out. Um, but yeah, it's been a it's been an incredible journey going down this rabbit hole. And then, you know, monetization wise too, just seeing all the different ways that folks, you know, tipping on on Twitch. You've got right. like tipping on Twitter now. You've got subscription products. You've got swag. So um, let's fast forward three years from now, audience keeps growing and the, monet- the monetization things get bit more baked out for you. How much do you think an individual creator in your niche, like how much do you think you can make three years from now just on the personal brand side of things? Forget the job and investing yeah. and other stuff. Have you guys talked to Pomp yet? Yeah, yeah we, we have a couple times, yeah. And we both know him well. I don't... We. I mean, I, I didn't mean, ask him that, but that question. Yeah, but, but if I, if I, ha- we, I can, but we can guess. I would yeah, guess we've guessed before. Okay, how about uh, we all guess? Okay, so out, not let's not include investment revenue, which yeah. I think investment revenue in the next. Uh, so we're let, talking about like paid newsletter sponsorships, yeah. uh, recurring revenue. Job or, board, I think we should throw in there because that's kind of like board. part of the personal brand you stuff. Got courses now, courses. But, but let me like just say though, his his investment revenue. If you told me that it makes him personally. $30 million spread evenly over the next 10 years, I wouldn't be surprised. Is that crazy, well, Sean? You, you per year, year? Or are you talking about 30 total? So, sorry, 30 total spread out evenly over 10 years. Yeah, I don't know how big his fund is, so I'm just going to take that out for a second. I think okay, on yeah. just a personal brand side, two, which is a little two and more a half. Two and a half. I, I would say three and a half. What would you have guessed, Dan? Two to four million is my best guess as of yeah. how much revenue he's making. And, and that's based on like my best knowledge. Right. Of, maybe like, five people on staff, so maybe half a million in costs. Yeah, got very, very little overhead, so very high margins. Right. Um, these are all value accretive too. Like if someone gets gets a job through Pomp, they yeah. might be really inclined to sign up to his newsletter. Right. These aren't like mutually exclusive sales, right? Um, but by far, I think like so he he's got the, so Pomp is the biggest. Pomp is so this is our upper bound limit, and that's why I chose Pomp. Right. Is now, Pomp, Pomp the that, biggest? What about um, in, in the Bitcoin in the crypto space? You're talking. No. About what about uh, my guy uh, Rao Powell? or is that his name, Rao Powell? Uh, he, he, 
Yeah, Raul Pal. He's more of like a macro. Finance I mean, guy. I guess we could call him crypto now because he's. But almost like, all there are these. Even though, like, let's say, like a guy who's kind of a troll. Even though I love him, like a James <laughs> Alta, even like a James Altucher, I bet you makes thirty million dollars a year in crypto newsletters. Dude, I, I don't, I don't think James Altucher. That guy's from like twenty seventeen era. He's, he's, old <laughs> he's a friend of mine, dude. He sold his new his crypto newsletter for sixteen million dollars. Wow, wow, yes. Holy shit! I didn't even know that. Do you know Motley Fool? Yeah, Motley Fool does close to a hundred million a month in revenue. Wow! Um, so I, I, I think that Pomp is the popular poppy one, but I think there. I bet you. I, I guarantee you, there's guys who have newsletters that they charge twenty thousand a year. Well, you guys have. Uh, you guys did the breakdown of Agora, right? Yeah. That like crazy newsletter thing. They bought I, James. I, yeah. Oh. Okay. Yeah. I mean. I got the, I got the, you know, after you guys did the breakdown of it, I actually talked to someone who worked there. Yeah. And got the breakdown. So, like that back end newsletter, the one that's a really high markup, like $1,000 a month, that's where they make all the money. Yeah. It's like, it's like you got your $20, $30 a month upfront one and you got the $1,000 back end one. I couldn't personally do it. I just feel kind of weird doing it personally. Were we I mean, wrong, <laughs> by the way? Were we wrong on our guesses for Agora? In terms of like uh, the revenue, I didn't do any revenue back at the envelope revenue stuff. I just want to know tactically, like how do they yeah, think about it? I'm with you, Dan. Yeah. There, there is something to that like, oh, this like weird slippery slope where you end up with these like, you know, this small 1% of these like whales who you've just milked their whole life savings because they think they're getting this. Um, no, no thanks. I'd rather build longer term value to like deliver something that I think is truly worth that amount of money. Right. That's where I've experimented with courses. So I've got my newsletter. I've got my newsletter. I've got ads. Um, Which one is the B-roll. best? The best combination of like effort, fun, and money. Like if you combine yeah. those, right? You want a low effort, high fun, high money. Like what is the best one so far you've experimented as a, as a creator of these tools in your tool belt? Probably YouTube because I, it's kind of fun shilling a product that you really like. So I only represent products that I personally use. Right. And it's an ethical standard that I have for myself. So, which means that I have eliminated a lot of the potential advertisers that would pay me a lot more. Right. Uh, for me, it's the only way that I feel like it'd be appropriate for me to, you know, represent this product. Um, the, the YouTube is fun because I get to like have like a little skit with it where I like I bring it up, I talk about it, I represent it. The newsletter, it's a lot of work. Um, that, I mean, writing an article a week doesn't sound like a lot. Yeah. It's a lot. Fuck yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> it, it, it's a ton of work and you take pride in it. Especially and you when it's it. paid. There's a bar of these people yeah. are paid for this information. So the information better be different and unique and awesome every totally. week. <laughs> and now I'm a, I'm a, you know, classic growth guy. So I have a survey at the end of each one to get like a raw MPS score. Right. I get feedback on what the next article they want written. That way I write the best, most relevant content, which means that they're satisfied but it's tough, you know, like it, it, it's really hard to wear. I, I don't know how Pomp does it daily. I, he must have I think he's got a guy. I, I would bet yeah. that he's got about two young guys. He, he do. says he does it. He says he sits down, he writes it in one take. Um, sure. Well, <laughs> I, I went out to me and my wife and him and his wife all went out to lunch one day and just hung out. And uh, Paulina, his wife, was, was teasing him like, like she was like, it takes me forever to write, write my weekly thing. He just sits down and he does it in 15 minutes and he's done. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've I've had some that have like cruised through like a straight like stream of consciousness, but it's tough. Some yeah. of them I do a lot of research for. Like I wrote one on Bitcoin DeFi, and that was a ton of like actually I tried to try out a couple different apps. It was a lot of work. So fun and ROI would be a YouTube channel where like I do these pre-roll, mid-roll ads. They're kind of fun to do. I can visually show off the product in a more fun, compelling way, like the products I'm representing. Uh, versus like the newsletter, which I have to sit down, really think through hard. And it's yeah. something that, 
know, I, I want to make sure I represent really, really well. By the way, you're a growth guy. Um, I've said that this Bitcoin laser eyes thing is one of the most genius kind of like decentralized marketing tactics I've ever seen. Um, I, I, what is the origin story? Is there an origin Wait, story? Were you there like two people that? behind it? No, no, no. I, I don't know if he invented it. I'm saying, do you know? He no. knows more people than I do. Where did this I, come from? And who are the geniuses that came up with this? Yeah. So I wrote about Bitcoin's decentralized marketing team before where like Bitcoin has no central marketing org. There's no right. propaganda arm of Bitcoin. It's like me and Pomp and, and everyone else who talks about Bitcoin. I don't know who originated it. It's like the origin of memes. I mean, Sometimes you can find where a meme came from, but sometimes it just kind of like it came from nowhere. I'm not sure who the first person was, and no one I know has claimed it. <laughs> Which is insane, because somebody yeah. should, and uh, and you could. You could be the first person who did this, right? That's not like a, that's not like a wild thing. And... But it's genius. It is like... Bitcoin, in so many ways, is a religion, and... Um, and this is just yet another like you know religious mark. Basically, you know this is the yarmulke. This is this is the sure. thing you wear that that says, "Hey, I'm a part of this religion." And, and um, you know, putting it in the profile picture, having it be slightly mysterious so people don't know what it's for, and then they ask, and then making it memeable where we could all do it. Uh, I think is it was just brilliant, 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 brilliant. Yeah, it, the space is. I mean, memes are such an incredible part of how stuff is communicated nowadays, right? Like, I mean, we saw like elections. Can, can, people can be elected based on memes. Like memes aren't just these funny things on like 4chan or Reddit anymore. Like memes are, the memes are like the main trend. Like my mom uses memes now. She does it on like Facebook, but right. you know, it's, it's crazy. Like it's narrative compression at its finest. It's taking a whole narrative and compressing it into one image. And I think yeah. that's why it's so powerful as a transmission yeah, it's, method. Yeah, it's, it's the most shareable viral thing you can do, right, on the internet. And so it's like, what, you know, memes are the packaging for ideas. If you want to most efficiently package an idea, a meme is the best way. So I've joked about, uh, we saw this thing called, uh, I think it was called like Meme University or LOL University or something like that. <laughs> and it, basically they took the website of Lambda School and they just remade it for of a school that would teach you how to do memes. And it, was, it, it was a joke website. It's not like a real course behind it. But I was like, you know, if there really should be a course that somebody should take, this is it. Um, people, people, if you could learn this, it's learning, you know, the native tongue of the internet. Um, and, and, you know, it's pretty important to be fluent in internet nowadays. And so I think, <laughs> I think that's one where I'm like, if somebody really should create this. I have this Slack channel uh, that me and Ben do where we basically put out a challenge where we said every day for 50 days, we're going to make a new meme um, because, you know, it's easy to spread these, but it's you know, the act of actually making one is hard. It's telling, a, you know, telling a story, telling a joke in the most efficient form. And it's been so challenging to just do this every day for 50 days. Well, what's kind of fun is um, my buddies over at eToro, Brad Mitchelson, really, really smart marketing guy, him and I are buddies. And what they did is they started to create GIFs on so on giphy and giphy like that that's that gets pulled into like facebook messenger yeah, search engine twitter gifs so i started to make I, I saw their strategy for etoro and i made that for myself so i took like the most popular bitcoin memes and then wrapped it in my own black and white design to where you could search like dan held and you'd see a bunch of black and white gifs and have my my logo watermarked on there so like you can kind of create meme factories is what i learned from that like you can create like a meme factory to use that to propagate content and Giphy was a really great way of doing it because it's plugged into so many different platforms versus like if you, you know, each one individually, like trying to create like an emoji with right. each social platform would be tough. But like Giphy gets pulled into all of them. Yeah, that's smart. I like that. All right. We're about at the top of the hour. Um, do we want to go over one more idea or what, Sean? Um, I don't know. If you, have, if you have one that's burning, you could do it. Otherwise, I think we should uh, wrap it up. 
Cool. Well, yeah, I mean, just my, I think like closing thought on like the creator economy stuff. Um, I've been in Bitcoin for nine years and that has been a huge fascination for me. I would say the creator economy is not an equal fascination, but quickly becoming something very interesting. Um, I think about it as like the monetization of all in human information, right? Like creators are just taking whatever knowledge they have locally, putting that on the internet, distributing it, and then monetizing that. And what is the value of all of that combined? I mean, it's <laughs> tens of trillions, a hundred trillion. I don't know what it's worth, but like for me, I just kind of see this huge, I mean, there's so many niche things that someone could write about. Like the, there's a million things and it's very low, very low effort to find your MVP versus before you had to go buy a warehouse and start producing things. You just produce content. And if that content resonates and people click and want to figure out what products you'd recommend for them, then you can go build your own products. So I see kind of like a whole the economy kind of reorienting around content marketing and that being the top of funnel and, and like idea generation for all future products. Great. Well, what do you think, Sean? Are we yeah, out? yeah. Let's wrap it up. I, I like that one. That that's, uh, I like the way you explain that because I think it it aligns with something I believe, which is when when there's never been more information, it's all about who actually has attention, and the person who's going to have attention is whoever is putting out great content consistently. So great content once will get your attention once, and then great content consistently will build trust, which just says, look, it's too noisy. I'm just going to go to my sources I like. And, um, and then those people then hold the keys and, you know, up till now that's been captured by the platform. So that's been true, but YouTube still captured way more value and Twitch captured way more value and Twitter captured way more value than the people on it. And that seems to be flipping, uh, where, where either new platforms are going to come out where the creators own it or the, the value is going to accrue off platform in a bigger way than it did originally when it was like, I think the value accrued like 99, one, um, 99% to the platform, 1% to the creators. And I think that's, that's going to flip, uh, closer to 50, 50 over time. And I think Twitter is recognizing this, right? With the super follows, we can have like subscription followers where people subscribe to like a premium right. set of tweets you have. I mean, Twitter, I think, sees this coming. They see the exodus of folks building an audience on Twitter and then the exodus of all that monetization going to, to Substack. They're yeah. trying to bring that back in. Yeah, I think that's sort of just trading one master for another, though, in, in a way where it's like as long as Twitter will put super follows there and then they'll take the cut they want. And then as long as they're, they're the button to pay for stuff, they can, they'll just inch that cut from 10% to 15% to 20% to 50% over time. And... Um, and so I think, you know, the real answer here is, is how do you build this independently? And I think basically that that's the part of crypto I'm most excited about is people who are building, uh, you know, a social network that is open source, um, that if it can get adoption, and this is why I was interested in BitCloud is if it can get adoption, then, uh, that ratio will flip the, the, all the value will accrue to the creators and not to the core platform or protocol underneath, um, so, so that's what I'm excited about is like, that's the real disruption there. Well, we appreciate you coming on, Dan. Um, it's, uh, I've been following you on Twitter now for a couple of weeks since uh, uh, Sean's been talking about you and he's been saying that you were the guy to speak to and, and we appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, so go, oh, cool. go give him a follow. He's at, at Dan Held on Twitter. And uh, yeah, all right, we'll see you, we'll see you later. Feel like I can rule the world. I know I could be what I want to. I put my all in it like no days off. On the road, let's travel, never looking back. Oh, yeah.